Well, you remember uh, last week we looked just at verse 10 of 2 Peter chapter 3. And verse 10, you remember, was something of an exciting verse. It was something of a verse that in one sense kind of crashes in on us. And Peter was saying in that verse again the idea that the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night, wherein the heavens, again being on fire, shall melt with fervor and heat. There was something, as I said before, in this passage of Scripture that show us about the day of the Lord these three things. Number one, it is an unexpected day. Unexpected in the sense that sinners in their sin are not looking for this great day to come upon them. But it shall come, the Lord Jesus Christ said, as a thief in the night. Peter makes the same statement. Paul made the same statement as well. And even in the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks and he says, Lo, I come as a thief in the night. So the unexpectancy of that day, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, But the day shall not take you as a thief in the night. In other words, you and I are ready for this day. We're looking for this day. And again, we brought together some of the ideas of this, this day of the Lord. You remember along these ideas where we said, while the day of the Lord is indeed a day of judgment, it's a day of woe for the wicked, there is a sense in which in that coming day of the Lord, we read in the scripture that tells us that in that day, in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ will be admired in all of his saints. It's an admirable day because Jesus Christ is coming again to bring about eternal righteousness. And the godly, they long for again this time in which the Lord Jesus Christ will come and rule and reign on the earth. I hope you're looking forward to that day. I hope that they will not catch you as a thief in the night. I hope you have this expectancy uh, about the day. But again, for the, un for, for, the, for the scoffer and for the mocker, it will come as an unexpected day. They will again be caught short on that day. Not only was it, an, and not only did Peter say that it was an unexpected day, we saw that it was a day that is associated with great, catacly uh, great cataclysm. Again, that passage of scripture, uh, verse ten, where, where, um, where uh, Peter says the following: "Again, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat." What kind of a day is this? As I said before, it's a day of great cataclysm. We see the same thing here again in verse 12 where Peter says again, the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. We read again Matthew chapter 24 and the Lord Jesus Christ made reference to again, again the great cataclysm that is associated with his coming. What a day that will be. A day of cataclysm. But this day of cataclysm, you remember, was not a day of cataclysmic annihilation. You remember we talked about that last week. But rather what we saw was that it will be a day really of renovation. The, 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 this old order shall give way to a new order. And as Peter, as Peter says here in verse, in verse 12 and verse 13, it shall usher in a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwell righteousness. And so again, the cataclysm is not for annihilation of, the, uh, of this order. The cataclysm is for the renovation of this order that you and I again might be in that place where God's intended purposes for creation will all be fulfilled. Oh, it's a long, it's a day that we long for. So what I want to do today, again, in light of um, what we see here in verses uh, 11 through 13, I want to set before you this, this primary proposition, this doctrine, if you will. And it's the following. The certainty of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to judge his enemies and establish his personal rule upon the earth is to motivate each one of us to personal holiness active ministry, and a confident expectation of a place and time where righteousness shall rule over all things. I hope that's an encouragement to you. A place and time where righteousness shall rule over all things. We're going to see in this passage of Scripture <clears throat> when Peter talks about a, a new world, a new uh, heavens and new earth wherein righteousness dwells, 
The idea is this, is that righteousness is at home in this new order. <clears throat> that it's not something out of the ordinary. It's not the exception to the rule. It will be the rule. And I hope and I pray that excites you. I hope that's the type of place you want to be. Let the scoffers and the mockers laugh at such a place. We long for such a place. And so again, Peter will bring this all before us. Now, why is this important for us to, uh, for, for us to know? I think it's important for us to know for a number of reasons. Number one, in one sense, it gives us, again, a great anticipation uh, for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, your life is just not going on endlessly or aimlessly, but rather there is a goal, there is a purpose, and that purpose is that we might enjoy that day where righteousness dwells. And let me say this to you. As you long for that day, as you wait for that day, you and I, we have the opportunity to make something of that day here and now. Well, there we are in our homes, and it can be a house in which righteousness dwells. There you are in the privacy of your own mind. And it can be a mind where righteousness dwells. You see, again, this, this gives us something of a pattern that we long for and we aim for. But there is coming a day. You see, this is one of the things that we talked about. I think it, was in, it may have been in verse 9. <clears throat> I'm sorry, verse 10. We talked about the certainty of the day. The day of the Lord shall come. It's a certain day. Scoffers mock at this day. Again, the unbelievers, they, they roll their eyes at it. But the child of God embraces this, and Peter will not be shaken away from this. I find this very interesting. And as he, as he goes through the false teachers in, in chapter 2, as he goes through the scoffers in chapter 3, he's not shaken away. He's not moved away from the certainty of that coming day of the Lord. I hope you're not either. You see, again, it's very easy to get caught up in the, in the mundane uh, issues of life, isn't it? One day just blends into another and another and another, and we think, well, what's the, what's the purpose of it all? Oh, the purpose of it all is that God has given you seconds in the day, days in the week, weeks in the month, month in the year to glorify his name. Make use of it, my brothers and sisters. Make use of it. And so again, this is why uh, for us to have an understanding of this personal coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, why these things uh, therefore are important. Well, as I normally do, we'll take, a, we'll take a look at this passage of Scripture under three primary points. I think the points kind of lift themselves outright from the passage. And the three points that we're going to use to handle this passage of Scripture are, the, are as follows. Number one, we're going to see that in light of this coming day of the Lord, in our attitude, we are to be holy. In our attitude, we are to be holy. Secondly, we're going to see in light of the coming day of the Lord, in our action, we are to be hastening. In our action, we're to be busy for the things of God. And then the third thing we're going to see is that in light of the coming of the day of, of the Lord, we are, to, we, are in, we are in our anticipation to be hoping. So holy, hastening, and hoping. Let's take a look then at each one of these. And the first thing that we see here is that Peter is telling us that we are to be a holy people. Look what he says here in verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Seeing then all these things are to be dissolved. I want you to notice here, as I said earlier, Peter is in no way dissuaded from the reality of the personal return of Jesus Christ in glory. The scoffers may scoff. The false teachers may, may present all kind of uh, teaching that uh, takes away glory from Jesus Christ and brings attention to themselves. Peter will not be moved away from this reality. Again, seeing all these things shall be dissolved. You look around, this world that we look at, this world that seems so firm and stable, the scriptures say it will be dissolved. And Peter, as I said before, will not be moved away from this conviction. And I think what's interesting is that he asked a question in light of this conviction. Since all this is true, what manner of persons ought ye to be? 
And what Peter is doing is he is using, if I can put it this way, something of that very well-established approach in Scripture that the reality of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is to be a motivator to personal holiness. The reality of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is to be a motivator to personal holiness. Now, we saw this again in our first Scripture reading in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. And there's a couple of uh, parallel points that I want you to see in this passage of Scripture in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. And the first is this, what John says in verse 1. He says, behold what manner of love. Just stop there for a minute. Didn't Peter ask the question, what manner of persons we ought to be? John says, behold what manner of love. And you know what's interesting about that word manner? It means to be of a particular type, of a particular sort. In other words, it's just not an ordinary type of thing. What, what John is saying is this, behold what manner of love. I think some of our newer translations, some of the more free translations, I think they translate it along, this, along these lines. Behold, what kind of love is this? What kind of love is this that the love of God should come to rest on my soul? And Peter again is saying something along the same lines. What kind of people ought you to be in light of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let the sinners walk the way they walk. Again, not in, a, not in a way that we don't reach out to them. We'll get to that. Isn't it wonderful how the scripture always brings these things together? You know, on the one hand, we want to say, well, you know, you go your own. I'm going to heaven whether anybody's going with me or not. I'm going there by the grace of God. But the scriptures always bring us back. Hey, look, you know, you, you have people that you have to take. There's a body. There's a people that God is calling to himself. And so, again, we'll take a look at that. But Peter is saying the same thing. Basically, what manner of people ought you to be? What type of people ought you to be? What quality of people ought you to be? This is what Peter's saying. And really what he's saying is this. In light of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, our conduct and our character, our manners ought to all be different. They ought to be informed by the reality of the, of the gospel. They, ought to be they, all, they all ought to be informed by the call to holiness that God bring, brings to us over and over again. They ought to be all informed by the fact that in our lives we are to mirror something of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so again, when Peter asked this question, he asked this question in such a way as to express wonder and surprise. Oh, what manner of people ought we to be? But there's something else I want you to see here as John goes on in 1 John chapter 3, uh, verses uh, 1 and following. Again, what manner of love, the, uh, the excitement, the, uh, the amazement of that love that the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. And therefore the world knoweth us, knoweth us not because it knew him not. You see, once again, this isn't there. This there is this there is this 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 difference in in, in the child of God than 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 there is in the in, in the child of this world. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter two that you know you were once children of wrath, even as others, and you're not a child of wrath anymore if you're here through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the great blessing that's upon you. The great blessing upon you is essentially this: that Jesus Christ took the wrath that your sin deserved, and on the cross He bore that wrath. Oh, you see, have you identified them with Jesus Christ? Is Jesus Christ your substitute before a holy and righteous God? Has Jesus Christ given to you again that righteousness which is only received by faith? You see, and so John is able to say again, even as the world didn't know him, it doesn't know us. Again, there's a difference in the way we conduct ourselves in this world. Oh, is there a difference though? You see, too often we're, we're content to look just a, just a little bit better than the world. That's really not what we're called to. Oh, what manner of people ought we to be? John goes on to say this in verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Oh, don't you love that? John is reminding us, the scripture reminds us, look, understand who you are. Understand what you are. Now are we the sons of God. Because this love, this amazing love has come upon us, now are we the sons of God. 
And John goes on, it does not yet appear uh, what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This It's interesting here, isn't it? Here is this apostle, even under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying, look, we don't know what this is all going to be about yet, but we do know this, that when he comes, we shall see him, we shall see him as he is, and we shall be like unto him. In other words, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ answers a whole lot of our theological questions, and aren't you glad about that? There are questions that we have, difficulties that we have sometimes, and yet they will be answered by our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to see primarily this in verse 3 in 1 John chapter 1. I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Uh, John says this, And every man that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. Do you see, the, you see where, where the reality of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, how it moves us? How it moves us to a personal holiness of life? how it moves us to have something of a cherishing of the reality of righteousness and godliness being manifested in our lives. This is why Peter is able to say in another place, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's not merely good because of what he does on our behalf. He's good because he works in us something of his own nature and character. And so the people of God long to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, because of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's a motivation to personal holiness. I hope and I pray that we have all taken up that motivation to personal holiness. Our Lord Jesus Christ, again, uses his return uh, to spur us on as well. And we read from Matthew chapter 4, this, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 24 this morning. We can also read in Matthew chapter 25 the same idea. There's that parable of the ten virgins, you remember. And there they were, the, 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 the two groups of five. And, and the, one was, the one group was wise and the other group was foolish. And what, what ended up happening? Well, the foolish virgins, what did they do? They were not watchful over their, over their souls. They did not keep watch over their souls. They did not keep watch for the well-being of their souls. And so when our Lord Jesus Christ came, what happened? They were caught short. And the Lord Jesus Christ speaks that parable in order to spur us on to watchfulness. Watchfulness and holiness are sister graces, we might say. And so again, as you are watching for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, it will impact your holiness. As you have a, a, growing, uh, as you have a growing reality of holiness in your life, it will cause a greater expectation, a greater longing for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Matthew, again, chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, and that's why as our Lord closes up the parable, he says this, Watch ye therefore, for ye neither know the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. You see, there's a, we talked about this last week, about the unexpectancy of the day, the certainty of the day, but the unexpectancy of the day. Uh, you know, from the standpoint of, uh, of um, uh, particularly of the, of the unrighteous. And again, we don't know, and it, and it seems though God has been very much uh, intent on keeping it that way. He's using the unexpectancy of the day to motivate us, again, to personal watchfulness. Of course, you're not surprised that the Apostle Paul takes this up, uh, the great passage in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Uh, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldliness. Now again, the grace of God that, that brings salvation appearing to all men. Here's something of the gospel, right? And what, do, what, do, what, does the, what does grace do? Grace teaches us. And what does it teach us? It teaches us in holiness and righteousness. Denying ungodliness and worldly lust. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Aren't you glad you can do that in this present world? You see, we look for our new heavens and new earth wherein dwells righteousness. But even in this present world, you can live godly and righteously. Why? Because the Spirit of God, because the power of the gospel is real. And so again, this emphasis that Paul makes. And again, he, he, he connects this with the reality of the, of the return of our Lord. 
in verse 13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Now, what's very interesting is this. The three primary points that are in 2 Peter chapter uh, 3, verses uh, 11 through uh, 13 here, the three primary points, the idea of, as I said before, uh, in, in conduct holiness, uh, in, um, excuse me, in, in attitude holiness, in, in action, hastening, and in, um, and in uh, anticipation and expectation, we see basically these same kind of lines even in the, the passage in Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, we first have the parable of the foolish virgins. Then also in Matthew chapter 25, we have the parable of the talents, where the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching the necessity of being busy about his business until he returns. Peter right here, I mean, I'm sorry, Paul right here is saying that we are redeemed, right, in order that God might call to himself a people zealous for good works. So there, even in this passage here in Titus, there is the waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ. There is the holiness that comes from it. There is the activity that comes in that time of waiting and the holiness as well. So this theme that we see is consistent throughout all the word of God. That the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is, is the one of the primary motivators for personal holiness in the life of each and every one of us. Oh, brothers and sisters, may we live up to the call of the gospel here. The call of the gospel that says, let us live godly and holy lives in this present world. And so again, as I said before, Peter has not been dissuaded by either the mocking of the scoffer nor of the magnitude of that great day. Now, why do I say the magnitude of that great, because it, yeah, that great day? Because as I said before, this day, this day of the Lord, it is an awe. It is literally an awe-inspiring day. It is a day, again, in one sense that we, we, we almost can't fit it into our understanding of just how things work. How will this day be? What will this day be? Uh, this day where we see here uh, in, in, in verse 12, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervor and heat. What kind of a day is that? What kind of a day will it be by way of its magnitude that our Lord Jesus Christ was speaking about in Matthew 24 when he talks about the, the stars of heaven falling, all these things. And as I said before, and I want you to see this, neither mocking, neither the mocking of the scoffers nor the magnitude of the greatness of that day is enough to dissuade Peter from holding on to the reality, number one, that there is a day in which Jesus Christ shall indeed come, and that number two, that day is a day of motivation unto particular actions. And I want you to think that way with me as well. I don't want the scoffers to move you off of your, of, of your convictions concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't want the magnitude of the day to move you off of your convictions either. Why do I bring this out? Because again, where, where do you fit this type of a thing in the normal course of events? In the normal course of events, this is cataclysm to the greatest degree. The heavens on fire, the elements being burnt up. What is that? Well, I, I think we can go back to what John said there in, in John, 1 John chapter 3. Certain things we don't know, but when he comes, we'll know. These things will be figured out. The Lord Jesus Christ will inform us of these things. But again, the greatness, the magnitude of the day doesn't, doesn't shake Peter off of his convictions. Now, that brings us back to this idea. What kind of a day will the day of the Lord be? Well, one of the things that I have to... In one sense, apologize for, I probably didn't do a, a sufficient job last week of, of really laying out what the day of the Lord is. 
And one of the things that I'm not going to do today is I'm not going to give any kind of an extended uh, discussion of what the day of the Lord is. It would take more than just the time that we have in the sermon this morning. But you do have to understand that the day of the Lord is a very, very important biblical and theological uh, concept. And as we said before, that the day of the Lord is that day in which God's where God's breaking in in human history to bring about judgment on his enemies and redemption for his people. And so again, it is a day, and sometimes it can be used of any particular day in which God does that, but it's also used in this large kind of uh, ultimate sense that we see Peter referring to it here. As the, day, as the concept of the day of the Lord is understood within uh, the whole, if I can put it this way, the whole uh, circle or the whole, if you'll allow me, the whole encyclopedia of, uh, of, of theology. Now, the day of the Lord takes upon a very, uh, a very specific uh, meaning. Uh, sometimes it's used, once again, in more of a general way, just that day in which Jesus Christ shall come to judge the, the, the living and the dead. Other times, other theological schools of thought, and I'm more closer to this uh, theological school of thought, that would break up the day of the Lord to understand of the rapture of the church, to understand the millennial kingdom, to understand, again, the, the concept of judgment, and then at the end of that millennial kingdom, uh, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think what's very, very interesting is this, and, and there's a quote from, uh, from John Piper that I want to read here, and I think he really captures uh, the detail theologically that sometimes is necessary with the flow of the passages in front of us here. I think Piper really captures something here, and he says this, he says, Peter would have blunted his warning if he had given a long and detailed picture of how all the events of the end of the age fit together. And there is a lesson here for us. It is a legitimate theological enterprise to try to fit the various biblical pictures of the end times into a coherent system, as long as we honor the true meaning of each picture. But we must not forget that when it comes to applying the future to the present, to kindle hope or encourage sobriety, or motivate godliness, the biblical writers usually zeroed in on one or two points of the picture and drove them home for all they were worth. That's what Peter does. And I suspect, and I suspect that in our usual witness and exhortation, that's what we should do too. What's he saying here? Well, if I can kind of put it in a very short span. Peter, uh, 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 Piper here, if he is understanding Peter correctly, and I think that he is, Piper here is saying essentially this. That in this passage of scripture, as it stands on the pages of scripture here, Peter is more concerned with the pastoral force of this passage more than he is concerned with the development of the theology of the passage. It's there. The theology is there. And when we come to doing the whole task of systematizing truth, that all has to be put in place. But Peter is just trying to, once again, look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. He's trying to stir up. His readers, he's trying to keep them from, from being influenced by the scoffers and the mockers. And so what Peter is doing is essentially this. He's not breaking down all the details of the day of the Lord here. He's just saying, look, in light of that great and awesome day, live holy lives. Hasten the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and have a hope that is marked by great expectancy. And so again, I think there's something to be learned from that. We don't want to ignore uh, the place that the day of the Lord, uh, where it fits in, the, in our overall system of theology. But in this passage of scripture right now, again, Peter's emphasis is on moving. Literally, this is, and again, this is, what, this is what preaching is intended to do. Preaching is intended not only to inform the mind, preaching is intended to, to move the will. And Peter wants you and I to be moved to, again, this concept of personal holiness. And how does Peter define holiness for us here? He does it in two ways. 
He gives us two words or two concepts, one that involves an internal aspect of our being and another that includes an external aspect of our being. Notice again what he says here in verse, uh, in verse, uh, in, in verse 11. Seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be? Are you ready for this? In all holy conversation, that's our living, and in all godliness, that more pointing to our inward, our inward frame, our inward, our, our inward character. And what Peter is saying is this, listen, in light of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, be genuinely holy people. Be people who live righteously. Let holiness guide you. Let holiness mark you. Let it not only be that which, you, which, you, which, uh, which others may at the right time look and see you hopefully do, but let it be that which is a true outflow of an inner work of grace in the heart and soul. This is the type of people we ought to be in light of this awesome day. Yes, many questions surround this day. Many questions come up. And again, it's very interesting to see how all the details work out and how they all fit together. Peter's not laying that out right now. He's moving you and me through the Spirit of God inspired, through the Spirit-inspired Word. And now in the, in the very act of preaching, he's moving us, as it were, to take up this call to holiness in light of the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ indeed shall come to judge the living and the dead. And so that's what we see by way of our, by way of our, um, by way of our inner attitude, uh, excuse me, by way, of our, by way of our attitude, we are to be holy in our conduct. But the second thing that I want you to see in this passage of Scripture, that, that Peter sets before something by way of not only of our inner attitude, not only of our attitude, but, but also of our, of our actions. Our attitude is to be holiness and godliness, and our actions are to be busy about the things of God. That's what Peter means when he says here, again in verse 12, looking for and hastening unto the coming day of God. Looking for and hastening unto the coming day of God. A very interesting expression here. And what's interesting is that uh, when we come to this, uh, to this, to the close of this, or to the end of this third chapter, there are many very important ideas that are on the pages here. Ideas that we have to interact with one way or another. And in verse twelve, if verses ten and eleven introduced us some, to some questions, verse twelve introduces us to questions as well. And the one question that it introduces us to is the idea of this hastening the day of the Lord, or the, excuse me, here the day of God. What is it to hasten the day of God? That's kind of interesting, the, the way the passage is, uh, is translated in some, of our, uh, in some of our translations here. I think that the, uh, uh, the, I think the ESV says, uh, uh, waiting for the day of God. I think the, uh, the NIV says, uh, looking for the day of God. But, but the King James, again, says, hastening uh, the day of God. What is it to hasten the day of God? And the first question that comes up is this. Can we, can the church hasten by way of making it happen faster than intended the day of God. Can you do something that makes the coming of Christ happen sooner rather than later? Well, there's a question for you. <laughs> you know, how do you answer that? Well, I think there's a way we can answer that. The second question, though, is, uh, is this. Did you notice how that Peter makes mention now in verse 12, not to the day of the Lord, but not to the day of God? Well, is there... A similarity there? Or is there a distinction there? And then the third question is this. What, what, what do we do once again with these cataclysmic events? Uh, how do we understand that? Again, we've already somewhat answered that. They're not by way of annihilation or by way of re renovation. Let's go back to the other two questions. Uh, you know, can we hasten or speed up the day of, uh, of, of God? Well, I think ultimately we have to say, and I have to be very, very careful what I say here in the way that I say it. Uh, so I'll start this way. That from the perspective of human activity and responsibility, 
We hasten the day of God by doing those things that God has called us to do. We hasten the day of God by, number one, understanding and realizing that this patience that God is showing, this long-suffering, is all intended to bring about repentance and salvation on the part of those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the idea. Remember that in verse 9? The Lord is not willing that any should perish. I think in verse 15, uh, what's Peter going to say? The same idea is going to come up in verse 15. An account of the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. So understand, whatever time frame there is between the, the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the intention of God in that is to bring about repentance and salvation. Did you remember when in Matthew 24 when the Lord Jesus Christ on two occasions spoke about gathering his elect? That's what's happening in this period of time. But how are the people of God gathered? They're only gathered one way. Through the preaching and proclamation of the gospel. Sinners only get saved in one way. They don't get saved by just waking up one day and saying, you know what, I think I'm going to get right with God. No, the gospel is preached. Now, the effect of the preaching of the word of God may like a seed be planted deep in the soul and not come to fruition later on, sometimes much later. I think you've heard me use the, uh, the illustration of a, of a man. I, I don't know. I wish I knew exactly where I could remember where this illustration was. But, but supposedly, and here we go with some of these illustrations, right? supposedly a man 99 years old on his deathbed. Lived, lived, lived contrary to the commands of God all of his life. But at 99 years old, there he was dying on his deathbed. And what does he remember? He remembers a sermon that he heard when he was a little boy. And through what he remembered of that sermon, he came to faith in Christ, again, as the, as the illustration goes. But we know that it certainly happens, and it can happen. It's in the preaching of the Word of God. And so again, if we understand that the period of time is all designed to bring sinners to repentance, what do we do in this period of time? We don't sit around and say, well, you know what? I know. I don't know when God's coming, but I know that day is fixed. We say this to ourselves, don't we, sometimes? Not so much about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but about our own personal destinies. Well, you know, my day is fixed. Can't change it one way or another. And again, we, 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 we embrace what is this, this unbiblical fatalism rather than living to the glory of God in the moment that he asked for us. You may, only, you may only have another day to live it for the glory of God. And so again, this idea, number one, when it comes to this question, how can, can we hasten? Well, number one, understand this. Anything by way of this, uh, by way of this so, so-called delay, and it's not really a delay, but anything by way that some people might say it's a delay, is all intended in order that God might bring about the salvation of his people. But number two, understand this. If it is possible to hasten uh, the, or quicken the coming of the day of the Lord, we would also have to say this, that, that this is probably reflecting something of the idea of what we see by way of the desire of the people of God that's expressed by the Apostle John in Revelation. In the book of Revelation, you remember what John says as he, as he closes out that, that blessed book, Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. He says this, He which testifies these things saith, Surely I come quickly. And John responds, Amen, even so. Come, Lord Jesus. You see, there is to be a desire in the hearts of the people of God for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's something that goes into fueling this idea of what it is to hasten the day. I think prayer is another way in which if this day, quote-unquote, could be moved up or would be moved up, it's by prayer. The Lord Jesus Christ teaches us, does, uh, teaches us this, doesn't he, in Matthew chapter 6. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And so again, not only is there by way of desire, there's by way of prayer as well. But thirdly, there's by way of preaching, and this is what it all revolves around. Peter, in the book of Acts, says this. 
He says, repent. And this is taken from the NIV. He says, repent and then turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Listen to what he says. And that the time of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who has been anointed for you. For he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. What's Peter saying? Look, repent, because the sooner you repent, the sooner Jesus Christ comes. Now, does all this mean that we can move up the day of our Lord's return? In an ultimate sense, no. But from the perspective of your activity and from the perspective of what God calls you to, he calls you to action in this day. You know how we think. Well, the day's set, so hey, you know it's going to come no matter what I do. You know we think that way. I'll say we. <laughs> you know you think that way. I know I think that way at times. And so again, we're given over to this wrong conclusion from right principles. But what we see in this passage of Scripture, when Peter says, looking forward and hastening unto the coming day, I don't think that he's saying that we can actually, in the program of God, make God move things up. We see this for two reasons. In Acts chapter 17, verse 31, what does Paul say? For he has appointed a day. I think the NIV says, or the ESV says, a day is fixed. Well, a day is fixed, you see. But from the perspective of activity, and from the perspective of busyness, and from the perspective of what God calls you and me to, let us be about this hastening of the day of the Lord. We're not going to move it up by way of God's timetable, but we're going to do everything within the scope that God gives to us to be busy about the work that he's called us to do. And so what we see here again is that in our actions, we are to be hastening. Now again, this is, um, as, I, as I said, there's a sense in which we can, we can uh, compare this with the, that second section in Matthew 25, the, the parable of the talents. Uh, you see there, there was that master and he was giving out certain talents. And what did he expect of those who received those talents? He expected them to, to make use of them. Well, you see, in this day, God expects you to make use of what he has blessed and, give you, and given you. And I don't mean, I don't mean finan- what you, he's given you financially. I mean, who and what you are as a person. Are you improving on that? Are you and all your quirks being used for the glory of God by those quirks? It happens that way. We see this again, Matthew, uh, excuse me, Luke 19, something of a, the parallel of, uh, of Matthew 25 there. Uh, and, th- and as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was not to Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered unto them ten pounds. And he said unto them, you know the next words, occupy till I come. That's what Peter is saying to us here. Peter is saying in the light of this awful day of the Lord that's coming, a day in which Christ shall judge the living and the dead, and a day that has to be fit, with, has to be fit within a larger theological framework, which we're not getting into right now. But in light of that day, let us be busy about the work that God has called us to. Let us be hastening and looking unto the coming day. Well, the third point that we see Peter developing here in this passage of Scripture is found in verse 13, and he says this, Nevertheless, we... According to his promise, look for a new heavens and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Nevertheless, that's the Christian's attitude. He sees what's going on. He knows what this world is all about. But he takes he or, he or she takes their stand in this world and says, Nevertheless, nevertheless, I know in whom I have believed and I am persuaded he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Nevertheless, you see faith standing against the tide of the culture. Nevertheless, the Christian says, 
And as I said before, Peter, not being dissuaded by the scoffers, not by, by the mockers, not being dissuaded by the magnitude of the day, nevertheless, all these things are coming. This, 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 this atmosphere itself will be burnt up. How does that happen? I don't know. And it's interesting that when you look at the, at the whole concept of the day of the Lord, some, some just kind of subsume under the day of the Lord everything by way of just that, that, that Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. Others see this day of the Lord as that day that includes that fire of renovation that introduces now the day of God. So that they would see a distinction between the day of the Lord and the day of God. So that the day of the Lord would be the day of judgment, then the day of God would be the, would be the eternal state. Now I have to admit, I, I, I do find it hard to go along with that idea, at least from this passage of scripture, because the day of the Lord in verse 10 is described by the same events of the day of God in verse 12. Both of them have this cataclysm associated with them. But again, I'm not here to get into the detail. And notice what just happened in your minds. You went from the, the whole thought of motivation uh, to be busy about the things of God to now thinking, okay, where does it all fit in? And what Piper is saying that Peter is doing here, he's not trying to give so much the, the point by point details, although they're important and we have to work them out. He's just making sure that your pure minds are stirred up. He's making sure that your pure minds are spurred to action and to busyness for the things of God. But again, we come to this final point then. The, our anticipation should be one of hoping. Nevertheless, as I said before, I love that. And what we're seeing here by way of hoping is not, the, is not that our anticipation should be wishing, but it should be hoping in the biblical sense of the word. What is hope in the biblical sense of the word? It is the, ex, it is the expectation of good based on the promises of God. You have every reason to be hopeful, expectantly hopeful. Why? Because it's God himself who made you these promises. So why wouldn't you expect him to fulfill them? And that's exactly what Peter is saying here. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, remember we talked about, I think it was in verse 7, where the scoffers, the, or maybe verse 4, where the scoffers mark, and, they, and how do they mark? They say, where is the promise of his coming? And you remember what we said is that for the believer, that's what the return of Jesus Christ is. It's, it's not just a point in his theological spectrum. It's a personal promise made by Jesus Christ to my soul and to your soul. Christ has promised to return for you. And Peter's not moved away from that. Peter says, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, he goes back once again to the bedrock certainty of the promise of Jesus Christ. He will not be moved away from that. Neither mocker nor magnitude will move him away from that. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise. Well, you see, this promise, again, is designed to give encouragement to his flock. And this promise, again, is a promise that not only was found on the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ, but this promise is a promise that has, and if we can put it this way, it has great antiquity. It's, it's, it's a promise that in one sense was bound up in the very purposes of God in the, in, in the, in the original creation. And man having sinned, and those, the famous, uh, the famous uh, line by, by John Milton, paradise lost and then paradise regained. You see, what we're going to see with this coming day of the Lord Jesus Christ, this, this new heaven and this new earth, we're going to see creation as God intended it. Now we often see it as man intends it. We have all kind of, uh, all kind of things that get messed up in the, in the meantime. But God is not going to abandon his purposes for this creation. And therefore there is the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. That's why Isaiah said, 
or God through Isaiah said in Isaiah 65 verse 17, for behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. 66 verse 22, for as the new heavens and new earth, which I shall make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. You see, this promise goes back to the days of Isaiah. The other prophets made mention of it too. And what I want you to see here is that Malachi makes mention of this new heavens, this, 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 this coming new age, but he refers to it again in the context, and I think this is helpful here, he refers to it in the context of renovation. Listen to what he says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 2. But who may abide the day of his coming? Again, this is the awfulness of that day for the wicked. Who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? Now listen to what Micah says. For he is like a refiner's fire. Remember we talked about how that all this cataclysm that we see in 2 Peter chapter 3 isn't annihilation, it's renovation. It's a refiner's fire. Malachi goes on to say in, uh, in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and he, and he, and he captures for us, again, in, 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 a broad, in broad categories, he captures for us in broad categories the fact that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment on the wicked, but a day of blessing on the righteous. Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Verse 2, but unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go, go forth and grow up of calves of the stall. You see, this day is the day of blessing that's coming. And I set this day before you. I set this awful day of the, of, of the Lord before you. This reality of the coming judgment of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, are you ready for this day? And you can say about me what you want at this point. Oh, here's the preacher trying to scare me out of hell. I don't care what you say about it. What the scriptures say here is true. It is an awful day that's coming. It could be a day of blessing, though. A day of blessing in which the Lord Jesus Christ gives to all those who have lived for him all the rewards that are due them. Now again, that's a, that's a very broad uh, uh, embrace of, of the day of the Lord, not getting into all the details theologically that are, that are there in the scripture. But I just want you to remember these things. This day of renovation is coming. God will not allow for sin to have the final say or the final word on his creation. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 and 21, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him that subjected it in hope that the creation and the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What's Paul saying? There's coming a great day of release for this creation. It's hard to believe, isn't it? This creation is a, is, is a wonder of beauty, is it not? We're, we're taken up by, by, the, by, by the things that we see. And, we're, and we, 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 we love some of the things. That they're, such, they're so pleasing to the, to, to the sight. Whether it's the, the sky in the morning or the evening. Whether it's the mountains or whether it's the sea. These things are wonderful. We look out in the space and we think, oh, what an amazing thing it is. And it is. But this is the created order subject to futility. What will it be in its full blossom? There's that little baby back there somewhere. Cute and everything else. Wherever the baby's at. And we ask, oh, what will it be when, it fully, when he or she fully blossoms? What great things God can do in and through that baby. It's the same thing with this created order. God will not leave this created order in its state of vanity and, and, and futility. God will bring about a great renovation. And that's your promise, brothers. That's the promise that God makes to you. And so in light of this day, then, what should we say? 
Well, we come back to our outline then, don't we? In light of this day, let our attitude be an attitude of personal holiness in a fallen world. In light of this day, let our actions be that of hastening the coming of our Lord through prayer, through desire, and through the preaching of the gospel. In light of this coming day, let our anticipation be expectantly hopeful, confident that God will bring the past all that he's promised. Let's pray.